Good morning, everyone. My name is Wally Mills, and um, my wife, Anita, and I have been attending and been a part of Harbor for the last five or six years, and it's my privilege to open God's Word for you this morning. Welcome to those of you who are online and watching at home this morning. This is the final week in our study, Work as Worship. And uh, personally, I've been challenged and I have been helped by participating in this series. Throughout this study, we've examined various Bible principles to gain a better understanding of how our work should be performed, as Isaiah said earlier, for the, for the worship and the glory of God. That's a challenge for every one of us. It is for me, at least. The second Sunday of January... We officially launched our series in the book of Genesis. You will remember back that we discovered that God gave Adam some meaningful work to do. And Liam, who led us that Sunday, reminded us that our God is the author of work. And he called Adam to work in the Garden of Eden. And from that point on, he called all of us to participate in work. And our jobs and our careers are wonderful blessings. And God has given us the privilege of enjoying and being satisfied by our work. But we must always remember, as we've been reminded this morning, that the true source of all of our joy and all of our satisfaction is in God and God alone. In this study, we discovered that regardless of whether we're employees or whether we're employers, we as believers should be people of character and integrity. We're to be individuals who can be counted on to be honest and reliable, who mind their own business in a sense and carry out their work enthusiastically and with the right attitude. We are to be, as Titus chapter 2 verse 10 says, to show as we work that we can be trust, fully trusted so that in every way we will make the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Our primary objective in this is the presentation of the glorious truth of who God is in the world through our work and through our lives. That's why it's important for us, that's why it's been important for us to take time out, to pause as we have kind of reflected on the importance of God and how important our work is and how we can reorient our lives and our work around His priorities. As uh, Pastor Jeff reminded us uh, from Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, he says there, Obey your masters in all things. Do not obey them just when they're watching you to gain their favor, but serve them honestly because you respect the Lord. In all the work you're doing, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for the Lord and not for men. Liam reminded me as I refer back to him and the message he gave that sin has invaded our world. It's invaded our lives. It has disrupted our priorities. It has distorted what God has pro pronounced as good. And we have, a, have had to deal with sin's curse on all that we do. Jesus knows about that curse. He knows about our struggles. And he knows about the idols that we put in within our own hearts. And he spoke directly about that struggle in Matthew chapter 6. 
And so if you would, I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and follow uh, as I read from Matthew chapter 6. And it will be on the screens for us in just a moment where it says there in Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good or healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or mammon, as the uh, original translation says. He uses a very descriptive, wonderfully descriptive term here, treasure. It's an ideal way of helping us to determine what drives us, what motivates us when the rubber meets the road. What is a treasure? A treasure is something that of assigned value. If I were to hold up here a $100 bill in front of you and I asked you why it's worth $100, I'm sure that you would say, well, it's not the ink or the paper that it's, that's worth $100. No, what makes it worth $100 is that the Bank of Canada has assigned it that value. And then once they've affined, assigned that piece of paper, that value, it takes on all kinds of influence. It stimulates us. It motivates us. It prompts us. It even drives us. In many ways, we judge the quality of other people's lives by how many of those bills they have. We know that the number of those bills that you have will probably have a bearing on where you live, may determine uh, what kind of food you ate, may determine what you do in your retirement, may determine the quality of your life. It becomes tremendously influential. What an interesting word, treasuries, something of value that you live for. Now there is in this passage a few principles that I want you to cons consider with me today. And uh, the first one is everyone lives for some kind of treasure. And it will be on our screen this morning as well. It's the assumed principle of this entire passage. We are treasure-oriented, worship-driven human beings. We all live in pursuit of something. There is some bright golden dream that captures us. We all live in pursuit of something in our lives. Notice what Jesus does in this passage. He divides the world of treasures into two groups. These two treasures represent two completely opposite lifestyles that Christ is talking about. First is the treasure on earth. It's the lifestyle of accumulation. It's the lifestyle of focused on me. It's focused on my pleasure, my comfort, my enjoyment, and I collect all these things around me that I think will quench that insatiable thirst inside of me for more. The problem with this lifestyle is that they're all of earth. 
and by necessity are temporary. They're short-lived and they do not last. These things never satisfy and there's never enough. John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil in the U.S., the first billionaire of the United States, and once the richest man on earth, was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he calmly replied, just a little bit more. It doesn't matter what financial bracket you're in, we are driven to get a little bit more and a little bit more. Work used to be something that about you, not something that defined you. And now, when we meet someone, as soon as we learn their name, the next question we ask is, what do you do in terms of work and career? And then we ask each other how we're doing, and the answer is almost always busy. Why are we burning ourselves out? Why are we burning the candle at both ends? Because our work pays off, or at least it appears to. Hard work and obsessive de dedication will often produce favorable results. Praise from our boss, the satisfaction of a job well done, higher pay, and making, making a, a bit of a difference. And you'll get promotions in your career. You'll get a sense of pride. You will earn respect among your peers. You'll realize admiration from your family as you're able to provide more and more. Hard work and the ability to rise from nothing to succeed in life is the dream we bought into in our free market world that we live in. As Christ followers, it's easy for us to buy into the idea that all of this hard work is the highest of all virtues. And people are trying to find more and more ways to work longer and longer hours in order to create more wealth. So what do we do as followers of Jesus Christ when our attitude about work and all that it achieves somehow crosses the line? And work goes from being something good and commendable to being something that we love and admire to excess. What happens when our hard work and ambition replaces Jesus as our provider and the focus of our worship? We often think of idols as these objects of worship that are clear and easily definable and recognizable. And on the side screens, though, you're going to see a couple of definitions. The first definition is Webster's dictionary definition of the word idol. And he says it's any object of passionate devotion. Any object that we love or admire to, success, to excess. There's something in our world, something we all tend to idolize. An inanimate object that seems so innocent, but it is not because when we love it to excess, it can indeed control our thoughts, our actions without us even realizing it. This week, many of you who are in groups, you'll hear J.D. Greer, the leader or the pastor of this series, say, an idol is not usually a bad thing. It's usually a good thing that takes on too much weight. That's a translation from a Hebrew word in and it really means influence and importance. So how does work become an idol? It becomes an idol when we assign it too much value. 
when it becomes our primary means of identity and our primary means of security. J.D. Greer says, idolatry happens when something means more to you than the glory of God does. Your life is driven by the praise of others or you're driven by this desire to succeed and you begin to do things for the profit. But as believers are, he says, but as believers, our identity is found in the fact that we are children of God bought by the blood of Christ. Work can be, a, can be dangerous as an idol. It's often so subtle and misleading. We don't even see it coming. And this good thing, like a creeping vine, tangles itself around our heart and quietly takes the place of God in our life. So I'd like you to consider with me a few ways in which this can happen. Many of us may look to work as an idol when we treat work as a means for power and control. And we're always trying to move ourselves into positions of influence. We like to be the person who is essential. We like to be the center of attention. We like to have the control over our world. And if we were to watch the video of our own life, we would see how sometimes we move ourselves into places where we'll be in the, in the power center and in the influence and work becomes our idol because of what it does for us. Maybe we live for success and we're driven and our life and our schedules are kind of cyclical because no success is ever success enough for us. And so we are always moving from one success to the other in a sort of workaholic type of life. Perhaps we live for the comforts of material possessions and we work to surround ourselves with the accessories of life that make, you com that make us comfortable. Perhaps we live for pleasure and are attracted to the choice indulgences of the created world and we can identify with a bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. And somehow, way, all of us are living for something. Everyone lives for some kind of treasure. In Matthew, there are two tests that we can use sort of as sensors to identify whether we've made work our idol. The first test, and again, it will be on the screen, is, is what I call the eye gate. Look at verse 22. It's a curious verse in the middle of this passage. The discussion about the treasure seems to fit and make sense, and then all of a sudden, we're kind of throwing a curveball in verse 22. Listen as I reread it. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, if you're reading this passage and you hit that verse, you think, what in the world does that verse have to do with the topic at hand? We're talking about treasure before verse 22. We're talking about treasure after verse 22. But in between, we have this discussion of the eye. It just doesn't seem to fit. It sounds like a Wallyism. Now, you may not be familiar with what that is, but I say that because I can be easily distracted and get off topic very easily. But this isn't Wally speaking. This is Jesus speaking. And it fits perfectly here. Jesus employs a metaphor, 
of the human eye to talk about our priorities. What we look at, what we stare at, what we focus on most in our lives is really the treasure we end up getting in life. You know, the simple truth can be actually be summarized in the eight words Jesus spoke, the eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, your eye is the gateway to your heart. We usually think of our vision moving out, of our, out from our eyes as we look at things, but Jesus is saying our eyes are really like a gateway to the inner life, to our heart. And the sequence of these verses are so important. It all starts with the eyes. You won't touch anything until you see it first and desire it. You won't go anywhere without first looking to see where you're going. So controlling what enters the eye gate is critically important. Jesus is talking about the danger of focusing on laying up treasures on earth. And we've all had the experience of seeing something and then wanting it. Ladies, have you ever been window shopping? And you see that outfit that is just the right color. And you say, I've got to have that. Guys, have you ever seen someone driving a new car and you say, I've got to have one of those. Young people, it's the same way with their phones and with the new gadgets. And you just say, wow, i got to get me one of those. And all desire begins with a look. It can be a good desire or it can be a bad desire. It all depends on what you're looking for. We are warned in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, that we shouldn't love the things of the world. And then it lists the progression of sin. And it speaks of the cravings of man... And the second thing is the lust of the eyes. Comes not from the Father, but from the world. The very first sin ever recorded was when Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And it all started with a look. The serpent only placed the idea before her. And her mistake was looking at it. That led to wanting it. And Genesis 3 verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food... And pleasing to the eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took and ate it. We have a choice of what we will look at. We can choose to look at things that rob us of life. Or we can choose to focus on things that will give us life. Jesus said if your eyes are good your whole body will be full of light. So if you want to be filled with God's goodness, you need to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true light that lights every person. The Bible says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the question we must ask ourselves is, what are we focused on? What is it that drives us? Your job could be turning into an idol when you believe that your paycheck will take better care of you than God can. When you have no time to pray because you can't seem to get your mind off of your job and you can't seem to take your eyes off your emails and your phones and your computers. We know what our priorities ought to be. The question is, what are they really? So look at your calendar. What dominates your schedule? When you get busy, what gets pushed aside? God, your family, or your job? 
How about your bank account? What, when money gets tight, does God get cut or do your earthly pleasures get cut? Look at how you make decisions. Where do you turn for guidance? Do you look to the Lord or do you look to your co-workers and friends? Not that those are important, but God first. The second test that indicates what you worship is what I'm calling the worry gate. And we pick up on that in verse 25, and that slide will be up there. Not the scripture, but the, the indicator of the worry gate. In verse 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, uh, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And, what do you, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the unbelievers, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says there are a number of things we tend to worry about. He, he uses examples of having enough to eat or drink and he having enough clothes to wear. The truth is we usually worry about things that are most important to us. Close to our hearts. And in terms of these essentials for life, Jesus uses a couple of examples from nature to remind us that God will take care of our needs. He points first to the birds and he reminds us that birds don't worry uh, about whether they will have enough food to eat. I don't know if you know much about birds, but birds don't have stress-related illnesses like we do. At least that's my interpretation. Birds don't work overtime so they can have as much food as the birds in the next nest. Why is that? It's because birds understand that God will provide for their needs. And rather than worrying about tomorrow, the birds focus on doing what needs to be done today. He makes the same point about the flowers. He says the flowers are beautiful. They have a beauty that far surpasses anything we human beings can create. God provides for their needs, and yet the flowers are here today and gone tomorrow. Jesus says this, we are more important than flowers. So what makes us think that God won't provide for us? And when we find ourselves worrying, it's because we're relying on ourselves and we're trusting in our jobs and our abilities instead of the Lord. And worry creeps in when we trust in our bank accounts and our skills and our hard work or something else to provide for our needs. Here's the problem. No matter how much we worry or how hard we work, we can't guarantee 
our safety or another single day. We ultimately do not control any of that. Only God does. And he says there's no sense worrying about tomorrow because we don't know what tomorrow will hold. The problem, the problem is with worry is that we, we wear ourselves out trying to deal with problems that may not even happen. Jesus tells us instead to concern ourselves with doing what needs to be done today. Worry doesn't accomplish anything. Jesus points out that worrying about dying won't make you live longer. And as a matter of fact, it might do the opposite. Worry doesn't do anything for us but wear us out. Someone has said that worry is kind of like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you don't go anywhere. Jesus says that instead of worrying, we should devote our energy to doing the things we can and the things we should do and trust God for the rest. But how are we supposed to avoid worry about work? Jesus' solution is simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and all else will be given to you. When we work hard to provide for our families, God will provide the things we need. When I say that, this is not a license to, to sit back and to be lazy. It's not saying that we should just relax and, and let God do the, the work. God says we should do our part and he will do his part. We may not have all the treasures that some people have, but we will have something far greater, a peace that comes by trusting God alone. So, what does worry reveal about our object of worship? Let me ask a couple of questions. What keeps you up at night? If our thoughts are about work and what we want and what needs to be done, when we insist on trying to take responsibility for things that only God can do, and we get weighed down by the burdens that are far too heavy for us to bear, Jesus is not saying we have no responsibility. He's, he's not saying that we should just sit back and do whatever we want, trusting God will provide. He's saying, no, what we need to do is allow God to do what he does and do our best in our ability, and we don't need to, to worry about the results. Results are God's domain. Following orders and direction is ours. There's another principle, and you'll find it in verse 21. It says, therefore, where your treasure is, there your heart be, will be also. Your treasure ultimately will control your heart. Once your work becomes your treasure, it will control the desires, your thoughts, and the emotions of your heart. When the pursuit of work and material things occupies you, that's what drives you on, and that's where the center of your attention is. Everything else becomes secondary because your life is built around your treasure. And the way that you interpret life will be the lens of your treasure. And then in verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You've probably heard this verse many times, but perhaps you didn't realize that Jesus spoke these words immediately after talking about how important it is to look at the proper things instead of letting evil or lesser things in through your eyes. 
You can have two friends, but you can't have two masters. You can work for two employers, but you can't, you can't have two masters. You can have only one ultimate master, the one to whom you give absolute allegiance. And in these verses, Jesus tells us that we cannot have two top priorities in our life. Only one will get to be at the top. Amen. We can't love work to excess because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion. And we can only cling to one Lord. Your treasure will control your heart. And it will control your worship. And that's my final principle. Your heart will control your worship. You see, once that treasure is in possession of your heart, it will set the agenda for your words, for your decisions, for your actions, for your plans, for your reactions. That's the spiritual truth that Jesus Christ is laying out in this passage. Everyone lives a treasure-oriented life. Everyone's heart is controlled by some kind of treasure. And that control then sets the agenda for what, for the what, or the who we worship. That's the reality of every human life. In Matthew 6, Jesus gives us some very practical instruction how to live our lives. He tells us that we should seek after heavenly treasures because earthly treasures will not last. He says that the only thing we, that can be the most important thing to us, that only one thing can be important to us. So we need to get our priorities straight. And ultimately, Jesus gives us a simple principle that overarches all those principles. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Make sure he's the first priority and all the other things will fall into place. You know, sometimes you don't know what you're missing until you get a glimpse of the way it should be. When I go to the eye doctor, as I did this week, she puts a new prescription in front of my eye. And I realize again how sharp and crisp and clear the world should be. And after seeing that, after seeing what I've been missing, it, shouldn't, it would be foolish for me to go back to where I was before. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what we're missing by focusing on the earthly treasure. The world promises us that if we can get a little bit more, we'll be happy. If we can get a raise and then our problems will go away. If we can just get a different job, everything will be cool. None of those things are bad per se. It's not wrong to have money or be popular or even to want a different job. The question is, who's the master of your life? What makes a day worthwhile for you? What gives your life significance and meaning? What's the focal point of your life? When we spend our time and our energy and our money and our talents and our skills seeking after the treasures of this earth, we're investing in things that are short-term and passing away. We need to see the bigger picture, the treasures in heaven that are forever. So how do we lay up treasures in heaven? In heaven. What are the things that we can invest in that will last? It's a life of willing investment of our personal time and energies and resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. You see, we have been welcomed as believers into a better kingdom that will truly satisfy our hearts. It's a kingdom that will give you the joy of investing in the lives of others. 
as we heard last week. If being generous with our time and our resources results in someone else coming to know Jesus, nothing can ever take that away from you. For all eternity, you will know that you got to be a part of changing one person's life forever. And if you spend time developing your relationship with God, the benefits of that investment don't end with your life here. They continue on for all eternity. Amen. It's a kingdom for which we were given life and breath. And I invite you to walk with me as we walk in step with the kingdom of God. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, we praise you because you are the sovereign God who is over all. We thank you that you did not even stop short of giving your own son. You provided a savior and we're so grateful. Thank you for challenging our hearts through this study. Father, thank you for just reminding us that there's one all-consuming treasure that has taken hold of our lives. Help us to evaluate it. Help us to confess where we're weak. To see how easily it is for us to make the things we see the treasure of our life. We confess our rebellion and we turn in faith to you and ask that you would enable us by your grace to walk with you in faithfulness and truth. And we give, it, give this time to you and all of our decisions collectively today. In Jesus' name, amen. We end this, this, this service this morning like we end all of our services. We have a responsibility to the world around us. So harbor, we are sent. <laughs>